If you had thoroughly read our shipping policies, you would see that it states that our shipping time frame was four to six weeks as an estimate and that it could take longer depending on the workload. This is all clearly stated. It is not an exact date. We cannot give customers an exact date as to when their items will be shipped because they are all handmade, one at a time. And obviously, you have no idea what goes into making these items. We make packages and ship every order ourselves. The shop is not a warehouse. We do not pull products off a shelf and ship them out instantly. Restating our policies are all we can do for people that do not read them before ordering. Your seven-week wait time is shortly past our estimated date, which is acceptable according to our stated time frames. I will let the boss know that you do not approve of how he runs his business of 28 years. I'm sure he will be happy to respond to your email himself, and I'm sure you will not be happy with what he has to say. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back after this message from our featured nonprofit. Namaste, my name is Naon Guru. I'm the director of Learning Out. We offer language classes and organize events uh, to encourage creativity and literacy. Our work evolved from crowdfunding projects, and with the help of private donations and small grants, we've been able to broaden our impact. My name is Biswa Surung. I'm learning advanced English. We've helped students get into colleges abroad, even Harvard, seen mothers learn to write their names in English, and inspire local leaders to look for ways to help within their communities. To learn more, find Learning House. Nepal on Facebook or visit the Kata Life website. That's K-H-A-T-A-L-I-F-E dot org. Don't just do something. Stand there. That's sort of backwards advice, but it goes a long way. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of this exchange? What's the purpose of this note? What's the purpose of the point I'm trying to make? If I'm teaching someone a lesson, What lesson am I trying to teach them? What would I like them to do instead? Who's it for and what's it for? That is the essence of design thinking. Who am I seeking to change? What change am I trying to make? Don't just stand there, do something, gets us into wars. It leads to people being put in prison for long periods of time. It wastes emotions and effort and leads to endless false starts. Because doing something makes us feel like we're making the problem go away. Sometimes the problem isn't going to go away. Everything we do at a funeral isn't going to bring the person back from the dead. Everything we do in a courtroom isn't going to help in the short run, or even the long run, the victim of that crime. The idea that people in government need to do something and do it right now because we are in pain is one of the weakest points of democracy. Because in order to get reelected, the elected official believes that he or she has to pander to our urgent need to do something. Do something. Do it right now. Do it loudly. Do it clearly. Get this over with so we can move forward. The alternative is to stand there. Not to stand there and ignore the situation, 
but to stand there and accept the situation. Yes, this happened. Yes, this situation exists. Yes, we are uncomfortable. Yes, the answer is complicated. Yes, we don't know exactly what to do. So we're going to stand here. We're going to stand here not ignoring it, but immersing ourselves in it, thinking as hard as we can to understand, maybe for a second, maybe longer, what that other person, what that other force, what that situation needs. Who are they? What do they know? What do they believe? What do they want? This question recently came up in an online discussion I did with people in the marketing seminar. Here it is. Hi, Seth. What I discovered in TMS is that I quite dislike the people I'm selling to. The big aha for me, then, was the idea of empathy. Now that we're chatting in this other format, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how we can do a better job of this, of getting into the head of someone who's so different from you. Right. So let me be really clear. Empathy doesn't mean that you like the other person. In fact, when you really like somebody else, you don't need that much empathy. Empathy means that the outcome is important enough to you that you are willing to exercise effort to get that outcome. So I'll give you an example that doesn't involve people to get us started. If you encounter an angry German shepherd, the question is not, do you want to adopt this German shepherd in your home with two little kids and make him your pet? The question is, how will you engage with this angry German shepherd so that he doesn't bite you? Well, empathy is what will get you there because the German shepherd's angry because of what's been done to it. The German shepherd is angry because of how it was raised. The German shepherd is angry because it is afraid or because it has been encouraged to be territorial. So once you know what the German shepherd is keeping track of, you won't treat it like a Labrador puppy. Because if you do, you're going to get bit. You will treat it knowing what the German shepherd is keeping track of and what's important to it. Well, the same thing is true when you're dealing with a television executive. You have no idea who's been kicking that person in the teeth all day since before you got there. You have no idea what his or her mortgage is like. You have no idea how many times this person has been double-crossed. All you know is that when you interact with them, they act in ways that you wouldn't act. Well, of course they do, because they're not you. So if you care about the outcome, which is, I need to get my show on the air, or I need this person to buy my software, or I need whatever it is, because it will help me and it will help them once they realize what's on offer, then the question is not, what would I do if I were you? Because I'm not you. The question is, if I knew what you knew, if I wanted what you wanted, if I had been exposed to what you had been exposed to, what story would resonate with me? And letting go of our own self-satisfaction and certainty in our correctness and imagining for a minute that we believe what they believe and that they know what they know and they want what they want, then what story has to show up? And, you know, Scott Perry uses the term agency. And if you give them the freedom to be who they are, you are able to dance with them 
so that you can both get what you want. And that's what professionals do. Amateur marketing, when you're marketing to friends who are just like you, anyone can do that. But a professional does the empathy on purpose. And I guess the short way to remember this is you don't have to have cancer to be an oncologist. You just have to be willing to imagine what the other person is going through that you're not. Empathy, then, doesn't mean we like the person we are trying to empathize with. It doesn't mean we like the situation that we are in. It simply means that we are choosing to do what works. What works for us is probably something that's also fair and just and works for the other person. So back to that note that we started the podcast with. The person who sent it to me, who sent this angry note after I sent a short note asking where my item was, the one that was seven weeks after I had ordered it. What was the note for? Did it make the sender feel better? Because it definitely made me feel worse. And now what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that feeling? How am I supposed to pay it forward? Is this the kind of note that gets them a five-star review? That gets them word of mouth? Does it basically say to the customer, I don't want to be your supplier anymore? Because there's nothing wrong with that, but they could have saved everyone a lot of time and money just by saying that. There's an expression, the customer is always right. What does it mean to say the customer is always right? I don't think it means the customer is always right. I think what it means is, if you want this person to continue being your customer, they need to believe that they are right. As soon as you say to the customer, nope, you are wrong, you must accept that, it's likely they don't want to be your customer anymore. That the opportunity we have when we serve people with empathy is to understand what they know, understand what they want, understand what they believe, and then work hard to give them new information, new understanding, new insight, so they can make a new decision based on new data and be able to work with us again going forward. So no, the customer doesn't have a right to be a bully. The customer doesn't have a right to dictate what you make or how you make it. The customer has the power to move on. The customer has the power to say, I don't want to be your customer anymore. And that's okay too. But if you want someone to continue to be your customer, then a level of empathy is required because people don't want to buy, people don't want to engage with other folks who aren't willing to see them. This idea of having the empathy to know who it's for, what's it for, and to talk to people in a way they want to be talked to expands way beyond the realm of customer service or one-star reviews on the internet. It gets to the heart of what we think about when we think about justice. The fact is that it helps some politicians, some people who want to grandstand, some people who want to attract a crowd, to demand draconian penalties, to figure out how to make prisons even worse, to argue loud and hard for the death penalty, even if due process hasn't occurred, to ignore the fact that people have been cleared of their crimes, to yell and to scream for vengeance. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because they don't want to stand there. They want to do something instead. Because to stand there would mean 
taking a deep, hard look at what caused the problem to begin with, to understand deeply what happens to, for example, a police department when it's under pressure to solve an unsolvable situation in the short run, or to think deeply about matters of privilege or racism or classism or education when we're trying to solve longer, more complicated problems. That what we have the opportunity to do, because we're grown-ups, because we have resources, is not always simply do something. What we have is the opportunity to stand there and to breathe and to see and to imagine what would happen if the shoe was on the other foot. This ability to hold the space to see the other people for who they are and who they want to be, it doesn't feel good in the short run. But what it does is it opens the door. It opens the door for us to be able to dance with other people, to make connections that matter, to share dignity. Because the thing about dignity is it's really hard to take, but very easy to give. And when you give the other person the dignity of empathy, even when you disagree with them, even when you don't like them, then what you've done is made it possible to move forward. So the choice we have to make is, do we want to do something right now, something draconian and dramatic that lets us blow off steam or feel safe in the moment, but ultimately not get what we want? Or, Are we willing to be professionals, to be grown-ups, to stand up and say, wait a minute, maybe we need to think about this. Not what's going to make me feel good today, but what's going to make me feel proud of my actions in the long run. Knowing that we've opened the door, shined a light, lent a hand, contributed something that helped other people move forward so we could move forward as well. In a second... We'll be back with answers to your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Hi, my name is Susan Paul. I am Makal Kunagrun. Oh, my name is Amizang Imali. My name is Alisha Baransali. I am Avinda Tepkata. Mama Shrestha. My name is Pradeep Guru. My name is Pradeep Dahal. I am Manisha Tamang. My name is Arti Guru. I want to be a computer engineer. I want to open an animal sanctuary. I want to be a microbiologist. I want to be a social worker. I want to be a businessman. I want to be a clinical pharmacist. I want to be a motivational speaker. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a CEO. I want to be someone who wants to chase the teenagers thing. I aspire to be an environmentalist. I want to be a researcher. I want to be a good nurse. But ever since I came to Morning House, I stepped into a whole new world. I can easily talk to any person or even foreigners. Morning House was the best thing ever happened to me. Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth, hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hello Seth. This is Greg coming to you from Boulder, Colorado. In your recent episode about distribution, 
Many of your examples coincided with drastic cost reductions in what's being distributed. However, in many cases, centralized companies take on the cost burden themselves in hopes to grow large enough to turn a profit. Google had to buy YouTube and pump billions into it just to keep it alive, and Amazon took a loss for over a decade. This new centralization seems to lead to new standards, or worse yet, outright censorship by the companies controlling the new distribution channel. Now, I know you're not a profit, but my question is whether you think cryptocurrency's promise of decentralization and concepts like streaming money for paid content may be the beginnings of the next wave of distribution disruption. Thanks. Two really good questions here. Thanks for bringing them up. The first one is, doesn't it cost a lot of money for someone to pioneer one of these distribution models? And the answer is, you bet. If it didn't, then the existing players would do it instead. But Random House didn't build Google, and NBC didn't build YouTube. Wow, CBS and ABC didn't even take over all of the channels that were available in cable because that change represented a threat and they couldn't see to the other side. But your real question is about the mass diversification that could come from microcurrency, from cryptocurrency, from lots and lots of people paying directly to creators. And we don't have to talk about it hypothetically because it's happening in China. Not with cryptocurrency, but 100 million people a month go to live streaming to watch about a million people, between 100,000 and a million people, put on a show. Some of them just have a few hundred viewers, but a few of them are making more than a million won a month with their live streaming, receiving gifts and tips and other things from the public. And we've seen this behavior before. And here's what happens. When there isn't a curator a middleman, somebody who feels like they need to up the level of interaction and quality, then a race to the bottom kicks in. Because the easiest way to get a small crowd, or even a big crowd, is to course in the work, to make it cheap and to make it fast and put it into the world, because no one knows what's going to work. And since no one knows what's going to work, it's hard to be Stanley Kubrick. It's hard to dig in and spend six months or a year without a publisher or a studio or a network cheering you on, cheering you on to make something amazing, something better. So what we end up with very often in music, in books, in movies, in theater, isn't this idea that the crowd is wise and sophisticated, but instead that there is a long tail of people who want things to be better, but without a middleman gathering people up, creating barriers that lead to upside, it's way more likely we end up with what we see on the Kindle. Hundreds of thousands of not very good self-published books, and then every once in a while, The Martian shows up. There are still gems, and sometimes those gems break through and are astonishing, and they make a commercial success, but often those gems are overlooked. And I think the big difference between one culture and the other, between 50 years ago and now, is that those overlooked gems still got made because they were a cost of doing business for the curator. But when everyone is their own publisher, it's harder than ever to do that. Hi, Seth. It's Randy Lipsy, San Diego. Just got done listening to your distribution podcast. And one of the questions I wanted to ask was, I've always been curious, 
because when Blockbuster was huge around the country, it seems like we would get a lot of the Blockbuster movies going directly to DVD and whatnot. And it doesn't seem like those same movies make it to Netflix necessarily. So I was always curious um, if you have an answer for why that is. Thanks for your question, and thanks for bringing up Netflix on this one. Netflix has rifted three times, has jumped, has leaped three times. Most companies are lucky to do it once. The first time they did it, of course, was when they started sending DVDs in the mail. That was a breakthrough. The second time they did it is when they intentionally walked away from DVDs and aggressively shifted to streaming. And the third time they did it, quite recently, was in saying, you know what? Instead of paying Hollywood for every movie they send down the pike the way Blockbuster used to, we're going to make our own stuff. Because we have the hardest part, distribution. We have the hardest part, the attention and trust of the viewer. We don't need to own theaters. We've got something better than theaters. And not only do we have viewers, we've got cash. So if we have cash and we have viewers, what do we need the studios for? And so Netflix is taking this huge leap, and the leap is spending more money each and every year to create more original content, which makes it super difficult for the studios to resell their mediocre movies the way they used to be able to do it to Blockbuster on a regular basis. Thanks, as always, for your questions. If you've got a question about this episode, I really hope you'll visit akimbo.link, press the appropriate button, and let me know what you're wondering about. Thanks for listening. Hello, Akimbo listeners. It's Seth, here to tell you about a new program that we've been working on. It's called the Bootstrappers Workshop. Just in time for Labor Day, we're running it one time this year, and it's all about freedom. The freedom of running your own gig. A different way. Something not quite a freelancer, not quite an entrepreneur, but somebody who creates value and gets paid for it. Check out thebootstrappersworkshop.com for all the information. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening.